Oh Lord, what a joy it is to consider that it is not ultimately our hold of You, but it is Your hold of us. We are weak, but You are strong. Lord, we thank You that in the might of Christ we can stand in the face of all the greatest battles we have to face in the weekends and week out. And so even now as we turn to Your Word, we look to You to strengthen us. We look not to ourselves, nor, Father, do these people look to me. But God, it's only You that we look to. The power of Your Word, working through the power of Your Spirit in our hearts, that Christ would be exalted, the enemy would be pushed away, and we would stand forever with You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Children, you're dismissed. The rest of you can have a seat. Good morning. I'm battling a cold all week. We're talking about spiritual warfare. I trust that's not what this is, but sometimes it's felt like it this week. Well, let me, uh, let me encourage you for a moment to imagine something, to think about a bit of a story, kind of imagine yourself here for a moment. Imagine you're a young child, and you're playing in the streets of a small western French town in the early 1940s. In your short life, uh, you've uh, done this many times before, you go out in the streets and you play, uh, and one of the things you like to do, for instance, is you have a little red ball and you throw it to your dog and the dog goes off and runs and gets the ball and brings it back to you. Sometimes you throw it back and you try to go get the ball before him, but you never beat the dog. He always gets it. There's other times that you go in those same streets in this western French town and you uh, play soccer with your friends and then you go home, back to your home uh, with your family and you have a nice meal. Uh, but one day you're on those streets playing again and you wander out this time to the town's edge. This is not new for you, but you go out there and you know that the buildings are less numerous there. The ground is more open. You've wandered out there because you've built a kite. And you're going out there to that field to try and fly that uh, kite with some of your friends. And as you're there trying to get it up off the ground, you laugh as it comes crashing down time and time again. But eventually, maybe on the seventh or eighth try, the kite finally lifts into the air. And you and all of your friends are looking at this kite and you're enjoying it, but Just about that moment, you look over into the woods that are just a few feet away from you and you see something you didn't expect to see. There's about six or seven men hiding in the forest. They have helmets on. They have war paint on their faces. They're carrying rifles and bullets. And they look at you and they try to motion you to go back home. And you are filled with terror in this moment. You realize at this very moment that you are standing in the middle of a battleground where the Allied forces are pushing back the German forces there in your city. You leave the kite to flutter and fall as you and your friends run back home as fast as you can in sheer terror. Now try and imagine, friends, if that was you, try and imagine what it would feel like in a moment's time to realize that you weren't in fact standing on a a playground as you thought. You're standing right in the middle of a battlefield. Try and imagine what it would feel like to realize that in a twinkling of an eye that you're not in a place of leisure, but you're standing in a place of extreme danger. Well, as we continue working our way through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, we come to the portion where Paul deals directly with spiritual warfare. And I think this story above is a good representation of the world that we live in. So many of us are innocently playing with kites when all around us a war is raging. So many of us believe that we are safe and we're not. So many of us believe that matters of church and doctrine are of little consequence when compared to more meaningful things and they're not. So many people say, lighten up, Jesus. Lighten up, Restoration Church. Lighten up, pastors. Don't be so serious about membership and doctrine and discipline. Well, This morning we will learn about the power of the enemy. We will learn about the need to daily, momentarily stand and fight against him with a superior power. So if Christ, his gospel, and his church are little more than additional apps on the phone of your life instead of its operating system, then might I encourage you to look to the woods and see the battle raging all around you. So we read about it here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. This is God's Word. 
Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Now, you'll notice that I stopped reading right in the middle of a point that Paul's making. It's important that you recognize that. So um, what we're going to do is I want you to consider this sermon sort of as a two part series over this week and next week. We'll think about the entirety of the point that Paul is making here. But this morning, we will more broadly consider the armor that we are to put on while focusing on the power of the enemy. Next week, we'll come back and consider more carefully how we put on the armor of God and stand firm in the power of Christ. So two points this morning. In the face of the power of the evil one, we must stand firm in Christ's might. And secondly, as we recognize the power of the devil. We'll spend most of our time on that second point. But here's the first. Stand firm in the strength of Christ's might. You'll notice in verse 10 there, that word finally, that indicates that he is summing up, Paul is summing up all that he's been telling us. All that we've been learning as a church even for these last number of months. Uh, finally, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That word, uh, therefore, be strong in the original reads, be being strong in the Lord. In other words, it's a passive verb, meaning we cannot make ourselves strong. We must allow ourselves to be made strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, which, by the way, is a good first lesson in the halls of warfare. If you are trying to fight the rigors of this life in your own strength, you will fail. I feel like I have to learn that lesson every single day. What strength we have, church family, is only given to us by the Lord. And so if you are sharp, if you are strong, if you are quick or cunning, that's because the Lord gave you that ability and he sustained you in it which is why Christians should be the most humble people on planet Earth. We have what we have because of the grace and the mercy of God, not because of anything that we have accomplished. We are strengthened in His might, not our own. Some of you are even exhausted this morning from life because you forgot this reality. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, not your own. Now you ask the question, well, how is it we do that? How is it we receive the might of Christ and not fight in our own strength? Well, Paul goes on in the very next verse, verse 11. He says the way that we put on the might of Christ and not fight in our own feeble strength, verse 11, is we put on the whole armor of God. And so so while we do receive the might of Christ, we are responsible for putting on that armor. God shows us where to receive the truth, where to receive the power. And note that it says there, not just put on the armor, not in put on some armor, it says put on the whole armor of God. And note that it is the armor of God. It's His armor, it's His strength. And yet He graciously gives that strength to His children that they may fight and win. But what exactly is this armor of God that we are to put on? Again, we're going to consider this more in detail next week, but for now, just slide your eyes down to verse 14. Notice the first thing that he says to put on when referencing the armor of God. He goes into it in more detail. What's the first thing? And then I want you to notice the last thing he says to put on. Verse 14, stand therefore having having fastened on the belt of truth. And then the very last part of the armor and verse 17, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So the first part of the armor is the truth. And the last part of the armor is the truth, the word of God. And everything in between those things flows out of that, flows out of the truth of God, flows out of the word of God. So righteousness, gospel, faith, salvation, all of them flow out of the truth. And the truth is found, we know, in the word. And the word is who? Christ. Christ. And so how is it we live in the strength of the Lord and not our own strength? Answer, we daily, momentarily put on the armor of God. What is the armor of God? Well, at the heart of the armor of God is the truth. Is the word of God by knowing and rehearsing the truth. This is how we are strong in the strength of Christ's might. 
I will come back to this in a minute, but look down, uh, look back actually in your Bibles to chapter 1, verse 16 to 18. And I want you to notice, this is one of the first things that Paul prays for. This very notion of having the truth deep inside them. Chapter 1, verses 16 to 18 says this. Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. What's your prayer, Paul? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. Note the presence of the Trinity there. And of the revelation and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So how does Paul expect the church to be strong in the Lord? How does Paul pray for them? How does Paul expect us to stand firm against the schemes of the devil? By slick services. By funny speaker guys. By kicking band. By a powerful movement. By being relevant. By believing in ourselves. No. None of those things. It's by having the knowledge of the revelation of God in our hearts. By putting on the belt of truth by which every other important thing flows from. And I want you to notice, guys, it's not just information that he says there. It's revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of our hearts enlightened with the truth. Don't lose sight of that. Let us not be fooled into thinking that truth in our minds will win the day. Because it won't. Satan knows more theology than all of us combined. We need truth in our hearts if we are going to stand firm in the might of Christ. The great Puritan pastor Thomas Brooke wrote a seminal work regarding spiritual warfare that's entitled Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And he describes this need to have the truth in our hearts in the following quote. He says, quote, Judas called Christ Lord, Lord. And yet he betrayed him. Ah, how many Judases have we in these days that kiss Christ and yet betray Christ? That in their words profess Him, but in their works deny Him. That bow their knee to Him, and yet in their hearts despise Him. That call Him Jesus, and yet will not obey Him for their Lord. It is not, he says, it is not He that knows the most truth in His head, but He that receives the most truth affectionately in His heart, that shall enjoy the happiness of having His judgment sound and clear, when others will be deluded and deceived. Unquote. Guys, this is why we labor in preaching the word to you every week. Working through books of the Bible. Long sermons. Feeding you big, hearty meals because of this reality. This is why we call you to community groups regularly, daily. This is why we call you to uh, discipling relationships, one-on-one discipling relationships. This is why we call you to have personal devotions. This is why. Because if you don't have the truth down affectionately deep in your heart, you'll get picked off. Knowing the truth and rehearsing the truth affectionately in your heart, daily, momentarily, weekly, is the only way you will tap into the might of Christ and stand in the evil day. And I want you to notice, all of you church, I want you to notice the collective nouns that are here. They're hard to see in the English, but it says they're put on the whole armor of God, not just part of it again, that you, that's a, that's a second person plural, that's a you all, that's a y'all, that the church may be able to stand, that you all, that the church would be able to stand. Not only can you not do this without the strength of Christ, not only can you not just do this alone, you need, Christian, the church. Defined and committed relationships with devoted pastors that know you and love you are in your lives and they're going to love you enough to tell you things you don't want to hear. That's the only way God's word will tell you that you're going to be able to stand in the evil day. The devil and his wicked minions are too strong for you. You need the might of Christ if you're going to prevail. You need the truth in your hearts alongside other committed Christians in the truth. And if you fail in this, your love for God, God's people is going to grow cold. And you'll play right into the devil's schemes. Let me show you the strength of Satan and his power in this passage. Let's move to that. Secondly, the devil is powerful. Now, I want you to notice first off there, the notice of that presence, the presence of that word against. You'll see it six times in the text in four verses. 
So as Christians, we're for a lot of things, but we are most surely against a lot of things. And the first thing that we need to see here that we are against, uh, the first thing that we need to recognize in this fight against the evil one is that this battle is not ultimately against flesh and blood. That's what it says there. Our struggles in this world are not merely physical or circumstantial or psychological. They are ultimately spiritual. And I want you to know, guys, that sentence that I just said is drastically different than most of the world and how it thinks. What I just said right there was countercultural to the extreme. Paul has just warned the church about all kinds of things from chapters 4 to 6. Remember, chapter 1 to 3, this is who you are in Christ. This is your identity in Christ. And then 4 to 6, he's warning about all these different things, things to do and not do. So we've seen he's warning against sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthiness, crude joking, drunkenness, marriage, family, all this stuff, work. And he's wanting us to see that we do not ultimately struggle with those things. Our struggle is what is behind those things, what is working behind those things. The spiritual forces of evil that are operating in this evil age to twist, to distort, to manipulate us into being something that we are not. So as to divide the church and bring her down. The material world that we live in, guys, is real. It was created by God and it was and is good. I believe that God will even return. Christ will return to redeem this physical world. But the deepest reality is beyond the material and onto the spiritual. God is spirit and the deepest reality is spiritual. Spiritual things give life to material things, not the other way around. And so that means our warfare is ultimately have to be, it has to be ultimately spiritual, not material. So your, your fight with your spouse, your fight with your boss, your fight with your body, your fight with your will to obey, to do what is right, it cannot and will not ultimately be fixed by the material, by the flesh and blood, but only until the spiritual is brought in order to Christ. Now, I want to be clear about something. We pray for the fields of medicine and education and sociology and biology and psychology and politics. A number of you work in those fields. We love that. We believe those things are good. In fact, I think we pray and should pray for even more people, more Christians to get involved in those fields, more people to work in those fields, more people to push back darkness by getting into those fields. The idea is not to turn everybody into pastors and missionaries. Not at all. We want lots of people in those world. But as Christians, we know that they do not ultimately have the answers, those Fields do not ultimately have the answers to seeing true and lasting reform. Our hope, in other words, is not in them. It's in the spiritual uh, realities that's working behind those things. Now, this is important to consider, guys, because we are about to enter into an election cycle that's going to be bonkers. I mean, it's going to be crazy. You're going to hear stuff, and you're going to be so incredibly discouraged and confused, more than you ever have in this next election cycle. Just be aware of that. And the reason why that's the case is because so many people in this world have their hope in a political party or in a a presidential candidate. Their hope is all there because they have no hopes in the spiritual. And so they're they're clinging to life and those things. And those important, those ideas that they are debating is important. They're critical. But they are only flesh and blood. We have to be more attentive to the work, the spiritual work behind them. The devil and his minions are scheming behind all of these fears in order to twist and contort the truth and usher in more darkness. We have to see behind these things as we advocate for things. And just in case you think the devil and spiritual evil sounds ridiculous, reductionistic, or the stuff of fairy tales... Well, friend, allow me to introduce you to Jesus of Nazareth. Nobody more historically true than him. Non-believers attribute Jesus of Nazareth in first century Palestine. And there's nobody from history that talks more about Satan and evil than him. He talks about the devil all the time. talks about hell all the time. It's very common in Jesus. You have to recognize, friend, that the best scheme Satan has in the world today is to convince you that he does not exist. That's his best ploy. Millions and millions of people believe that he doesn't exist, and yet they go on at the same time wondering why there's so much evil in the world and it can't ever seem to be pushed back. That's why, in part, they don't believe that he's real. The battle that is before us, the battle that is before all of us, is not flesh and blood, or not ultimately, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
Now listen, guys, there's, there's no need to try to pick apart every one of those phrases. Paul is simply piling up terms here to communicate how powerful the devil and spiritual evil are. So Paul says in a letter in 2 Corinthians, he says that uh, he even goes so far as to call Satan the god of this world. The devil and his machinations are real, they are pervasive, and they are powerful. More powerful than the U.S. Army. More powerful than the mobilization of every army on planet Earth. Because every army on planet Earth can only strike at flesh and blood. Satan has the ability to influence, to affect flesh and blood, because he has the ability to strike at the spiritual realities behind flesh and blood. I'm sure some of you are wondering about this spiritual force of evil in the heavenly places. Uh, that there is, that's their friend to communicate the height of his power. He's trying to communicate. The whole point of this passage right here is to communicate how powerful he is and how powerful spiritual evil is. So Paul's not saying that evil is in heaven. He's saying that the schemes of the devil are so powerful that they can reach the height of the heavenly places, presumably attacking the risen and reigning throne of Jesus Christ where the Christian blessing is secured. In other words, the schemes of the devil are able to attack here on earth and all the way up there because that's where our righteousness lies and the devil knows it. The devil is powerful. And just a brief word on who the devil is. The Bible teaches that he is a fallen angel who, uh, whose powerful existence alongside other spiritual evil forces are in place to disrupt the worship of the one true and living God. That's who he is and that's what his aim is. That's his goal. That's his life's mission. He means to disrupt the worship of Christ. That's what he's after. Let me show you that from the Bible. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Why? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. This is why we preach the gospel every week. We want you to see it every single week because we forget it. His goal is to disrupt the sight of the knowledge of the glory of Christ. He doesn't want people to see the beauty of the gospel. So summing up again, there is a war. This war is not of flesh and blood. It's against the schemes, against the tactics, against the strategies of the devil. And the schemes of the devil, they are very powerful. Their aim is to disrupt people from seeing and savoring the beauty of Christ. I had a sister in our community group this week. She said, why is it we give in to his schemes? And I said, sisters, because he's powerful. So how does the devil do this? How does he try to frustrate? How does he scheme against us to not see Christ, worship Christ? How does he use his power to take us down? Well, we should expect, you at least should expect him to work in a particular way by this point of the sermon. You should know that it has something to do with frustrating the truth. So I'm going to give you one title of Satan that will describe him. I'm going to give you one illustration, and then we'll end the sermon with five brief applications as to how Satan frustrates our uh, particular context. Here's the title of how he does this. The devil is a deceiver. He's a deceiver. Revelation 12.9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, how is he described? The deceiver of the whole world. So the devil is a deceiver. In other words, he lies by disguising the truth. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Jesus goes on to describe him most fully when right after speaking about how the truth sets us free. Right? I would encourage you, by the way, go back and listen to some of those sermons that we did on freedom. Right? We, 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 we work through this passage, John 8. But look how Jesus describes the evil one. He said he just got finished saying the truth will set you free. And then he goes into this, describing the devil. John eight forty three and 44. This is him speaking to Jews, not just Pharisees. He says here, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is powerful. 
Satan's aim is to disrupt the worship of the one true and living God to the sight of the glory of Christ. Satan does that by lying, by being deceitful, by disguising, twisting the truth. That's what makes him evil, twisting the truth. Now for the illustration. Let's watch him do this. Y'all know what I'm about to say. I love to do this. Wouldn't it be great if we could see him in action? Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. You can have it behind me. You don't have to turn there. If you don't want, right at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 to 6. Here's what it says. We're going to watch him in action, how he twists the truth. Now the serpent was more, that's, that's Satan. We just read from Revelation 12 that would tell us that it is. Now the serpent was more crafty, deceitful, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, that's Eve, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So Adam and Eve being good legalists, they add to the law. Verse 14, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Poor leadership. The devil schemes by deceiving Adam and Eve in this passage in four ways. Here they are. First, by disputing the word of God. Did God really say? By disputing it. Then secondly, he deceives by flat out denying it. You won't surely die. He disrupts. He denies. Thirdly, he doubts the goodness of God's word. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. In other words, what he's trying to convince them of is that God's holding out of you. If you eat and if you give in to this, life's going to be better. God's not good. He's holding out on you. Eat of this. Life's going to be better. It's going to empower you. Doubts the goodness of God. And finally, he dangles the deliciousness of sin. She saw, it says, that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree would make her wise. In other words, it looked good. It was going to taste good. And it's going to make her sharp. It's going to make her wise. Which, by the way, I think this is exactly why the, devil, the, the Bible so often is warning us against sensuality. Dispute the word. Deny the word. Doubt the goodness of the word. Dangle the deliciousness of sinning against the word. That's all it took to usher sin into the world. And by the way, uh, the evil one does the exact same thing. He employs the exact same strategies on Jesus in the wilderness. Exact same thing, except what he does is reverse the order. So Jesus, you recall, has been fasting for 40 days. What's the first thing he does? He tries to dangle to the deliciousness of sin. Turn this stone into a piece of bread and eat it. And then the second thing he does is he says, Jesus, listen, just, just worship me, and then you can have the glory of the nations. In other words, doubting the goodness of God's plan. Skip the cross, just go straight to me, and you'll get the glory of the nations. And then the last way that devil did it with Jesus, we'll probably consider this more next week, is he does this whole notion of uh, denying or disputing the word of God by quoting scripture to Jesus. Say, throw yourself off the top of the temple and the angels will catch you. The evil one has no new schemes, and yet his power is so great he deceives the masses away from the sight of the glory of Christ. In fact, he's probably doing that with some of you right now. Right now, you're fighting what I'm saying. You don't like it. Because you know, when I get down here to the application portion of the sermon, Matt Chandler calls these pew-clearing sermons, right? We're going to be an equal opportunity offender this morning. All of us are going to get hit. And you don't like it, and Satan's going to use that to say, no, no, Nathan's just a jerk. I think it's important to note, too, the evil one often does this by degrees. See, the example here in Genesis is abnormal in the sense that it all happens in one event. Often the evil evil one deceives us by degrees. He inches us away from the troop one step at a time. John Owen says that every lust would be full-born adultery if it could. Every thought of unbelief would be full-born atheism if it could. Satan seeks to slowly and indiscernibly 
have us drift towards disobedience without us noticing it. Just take a little bit of doctrine. Just shave this off. There's so many doctrines, guys, that are gateway drugs. They're fine in of themselves. They're not bad. And he knows that. And he just draws you away. So let's now apply how the evil one deceives us in our context by just keep those four D's in mind. Disputing, denying, uh, dangling, uh, doubting. Keep those things in mind as we walk through these things. These are five ways that I think the Satan can specifically tempt us in this context. 21st century Washington, D.C. I think the first and most prominent way is by deceitful doctrine. See, the easiest way to spot this is through false religions. If the evil one knows that we all instinctively worship, he then wisely constructs false religions so as to direct people away from the worship of Christ. And so, for instance, guys, I wholeheartedly believe that Muhammad saw an angel when he constructed what is now Islam in the 7th century. I think he saw it. I think he really did. I think he genuinely believed that he saw an angel. He just didn't work against 1 John 4 that says we're supposed to test the spirits against the word of God. I believe that Joseph Smith saw what he saw in 1800. But he did not think, 2 Corinthians 11, it could be an angel of light tested against the word. I believe that false teachers that hear things from God all the time, that push them away from the truth, they probably hear those things. But they're not testing them against the word. We're more easily swayed by doctrine that sounds a lot, though, I think, than what, uh, I think we're more easily swayed by what the Bible teaches in this context, in this church. I think we're more easily swayed by stuff that sounds more, that sounds more Christian. So places like the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, two groups that affirm the deity of Christ and the atonement of Christ, yet at the same time they deny the sufficiency of Christ's cross by their demanding more behaviors to be added onto it in order to be saved. Or what has become known as the American Gospel, otherwise known as the Prosperity Gospel. With Bibles open on the pulpit and Jesus as Lord written above their sanctuaries, false teachers like Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, and Creflo Dollar, they teach a gospel that will equip you to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. You can have your best life now. Who needs heaven? Jesus died to make you rich and healthy. Just believe in yourself and use him to get it. But even more subtle is the liberal gospel that has all the trappings of Christianity. But in the name of love, they use the word of love a lot. They choose to dismiss all the doctrines that don't fit inside the spirit of the times. And even more subtle than this is the gospel that preaches Christ, but preaches him in such a way as to assist you in your personal mission of individual glory and satisfaction so that you can feel good about yourself. Never actually looking and worshiping Christ. Similar to prosperity gospel in that way. Or on the other side of the ledger, churches that advocate legalism, neglecting grace, compassion, and forgiveness, they go beyond what is written and demand a law beyond Christ. Or churches that advocate racism, where in the name of harmony, they say that blacks and whites or other ethnicities, they should have their own separate spaces, denouncing the oneness of Christ that purchased oneness at the cross. This is the story of America in so many ways. We're even more closer to home. I think this would be even really close to us. Churches that advocate doctrine so pure that they talk about doctrine a lot, but they never actually get you to gaze and worship Jesus and enjoy him. But I think we could get even more closer to home by considering the ways that Satan uses particular doctrines to deceive and draw us away. So this is something I've been thinking about for the last two weeks, praying about, asking other pastors about. What is it, how is it, Satan might get this church in particular? What are some ways in which he might deceive and draw us away? I've been thinking about this, praying about this, talking to people about this, and I, I can envision three ways that he can especially use broadly in this church, and that is sexuality, gender roles, and the exclusivity of Christ. And we'll talk about this more in a moment, but the more normal things become, more normal sin becomes, the more easy it is to be opposed to the historic teaching of the Bible. The harder it is for the church to pursue unity and the bond of peace in an environment like that. So, for instance, the sexual revolution that is taking over this nation by force has ultimately tempted this church. This has already happened in our church, if you don't know, and it will again. And so Satan is, in effect, asking us, did God really say marriage is between a man and a woman? No, 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 he didn't. That was just another context. 
when it comes to gender roles. I can envision Satan asking, did God really create man and woman to have specific roles in the home and in the church? No, he didn't. That was a passage for a different context. Same ploy of disputing the word and then denying the word. And the exclusivity of Christ. I can envision Satan asking us, did God really say that Christ is the only way to heaven? No, no, he didn't. There are many roads to the top of mountain. That's more loving. Christianity is just one of those. In all these ways and even more, Satan disguises himself in light as he attempts to promote darkness and slowly, slowly create division with inside our church or other churches. Deceive one or two or three or just a small group. Let that cancer spread to the whole church is divided. And guys, this happens every single day in the world. Just two weeks ago, I was in a room with about 100 other pastors from all over the world. Probably 15 to 17 of them were just getting up, weeping, crying because of the division that was happening over these kinds of things in their church. It was tearing these pastors apart, tearing tearing churches apart. I was in a group last week, another group of pastors, about 30 pastors in this room here in the district. And they were all just confessing similar, not all, some of them were confessing similar, similar struggles. It's a constant threat. Satan knows it. Second way he can get at after us. Similar to this is the normalization of sin. Normalization of sin. Satan is incredibly crafty. He knows it's far more persuasive to be indirect. That's why he's a deceiver, a disguiser. What he will do to simply normal, what he will do is simply normalize sin around us, blunting our consciences by making disobedience the very thing everybody else does. So I think about this when I drive my car on the highway. Right? When I drive my car on the highway, I never pay attention to the speed limit, just being honest. All I do is I just sort of, what speed is everybody else going? And I'll just go a few degrees faster than that. That's what I do, right? I have no idea. There are times in which I'm going down and Andy, Nathan, it's 45. Oh, I thought it was 50. Everybody else is seeming to drive my speed. And we do the same thing, right? We do the same thing. Satan knows this. Just get everybody else to sort of do this, value this. Everybody sort of values the same thing. And once you can get that, it'll be easier to give into it because everybody else around you is doing it. It's harder to stand against them. We even have a name for it now. It's called virtue signaling. Just watch politicians, watch retail outlets chain cash in on you. They figure out, they put their finger to the wind, they figure out what everybody thinks is good and right and loving, and then they'll just create commercials to sort of say, hey, look, we're just like the rest of the world, come buy our stuff. Or politicians, hey, we're just like you, vote for me. This is what I think is behind the prophet Isaiah's call in Isaiah 5.20 when he says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. That's exactly what happened to Israel. You guys remember our sermon series through Judges last year? Everybody did what was right in their own eyes and there's no king in Israel. They just, things started to become normal. They started calling evil things good and they started calling good things evil. And before you know it, the entire nation of Israel was lost. Just because they were just reflecting the normalization of sin all around. They had the truth, became popular to oppose the truth and so they just started giving approval to it. You can read about this in Romans chapter 1 verses 28 to 32. I think the same thing's happening there. Third way. Satan deceives us through false teaching. First, secondly, normalization of sin. Thirdly, this one's probably going to hit close to home. Consumerism. Or we might call it convenient Christianity. The gospel is defined by giving. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, gave his son. The great two commands are love God, love neighbor, right? Not be centered on me. Philippians 2 says that the gospel is thinking of others as better than the self. And then it goes on to describe the ministry of Christ. And so if Satan can use even spiritual things to turn them in on self and just consume, just take, he wins. He's fine to have you come to church, to read the Bible, to pray, if all of that is centered on you merely using God, using his church for your own personal benefit. And sadly, churches have played into this scheme by trying to serve consumers just as the world does. Through their dividing the church through musical uh, styles, which often plays into age and economic divisions within the church. And then what, what does he wind up doing? He just gets the whole church to be divided from itself. You can come to the traditional service at 8.30, the contemporary service at 10. 
Then there's the modern service at 11. In and of these things, I want to be clear, they're not evil in and of themselves. But nevertheless, I just want you to see how the evil one can divide the church. There are even churches that divide uh, people up by lifestyle. You can go to cowboy churches. You can go to motorbike churches. You can go to family churches. You can go, as is popular in this city, the the, uh, young, white, and single churches. Slowly in the hearts of people, Christ, the gospel, the church, they become products to consume instead of people to love and a Christ to glory in. People are happy to take the name of Christ to show up at services, the services that best suit them when it's convenient. Eat whatever the church is cooking, but not clean up the dishes and take responsibility for the rest of the family. Not join the church and serve the church. Consumeristic Christianity is more American than it is Christian and it's more Bible Belt than it is Bible. It plays right into Satan's scheme of disputing God's word, doubting God's design for a life with Christ and his people in the kingdom. Not to mention it hurts the witness of the church and the faith of those that take his name. Satan, just if he can just keep us divided, keep us not committing to one another, just keep us away from each other and just take. Right? Jesus says in Acts 20.35, it is better to what? Give than to receive. And yet so many people take the name of Christ and just take without giving. Fourth way, Satan especially deceives his people here in our context is through distraction. Through distraction. Just think about those words in Genesis 3. Of all the trees in the garden. They're in this beautiful paradise. Beautiful trees everywhere. Communion with God, this beautiful place, unhindered access to God. Yet she saw that this one tree was good for food and delightful to the eyes and it would make her wise. In other words, Satan distracted Adam and Eve from the throngs of goodness around them. They brought life around them and the good God that made them so as to get them to sort of think more about this one thing that they really don't need that would actually not bring them life. Distract them, in other words, from better things. Keep them thin. Don't focus on one thing. Kind of focus or look at other things. And he does the same thing today. I'll give you one example. This is not a Christian book, but it's a good book. Uh, it's, called, uh, it's called The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. I'm going to use the notion, the popular notion, easy for me to, for me to pick on the Internet. Nicholas Carr writes this, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. He says, What the Internet seems to be doing is chipping away my capacity for concentration and contemplation. Whether I'm online or not, my mind now expects to take in information the way the Internet distributes it. That is, in a swiftly moving stream of particles. Once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words. Now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. Chipping away at my capacity for concentration and contemplation. Who would want that but the evil one himself? Poetry, friends, cannot be written on the fly. The modern secular mind increasingly despises the gospel, not because they have thoughtfully considered it, but precisely because they have not. Sin is normalized. Christ and the church are products to consume. Their hearts are puddled deep from lack of contemplation and consideration. And the most important things that give life, they are just largely neglected in favor of other things. Who else can could engineer an environment except Satan for something like that. Here, don't worry about your wife. Here's a phone. Don't think about your kids. Just go work. And then play golf. Don't think about the church. Come on, that's kind of boring anyway, right? Go do other things. Find God out there. Distract us. Tony Rinke Uh, This is a Christian book, says in his book, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. He says, quote, the more we take refuge in distraction, the more habituated we become to mere stimulation and the more desensitized to delight. We lose our capacity to stop and ponder something deeply, to admire something beautiful for its own sake. Instead, we lose ourselves to a game, a story or a person. Which, by the way, will easily, the more that we're distracted, the easier it is to believe false teaching, the easier it is to fall into normalization of sin, the easier it is to just consume. I think this explains this notion of being distracted. I think it explains why this country is the most wealthy country in the history of the world. We have more resources for shelter, for food, for clothing than ever before. 
And yet this same society is at record levels. Depression rates, suicide rates, uh, even in an, an age of connectivity, a recent poll has found that nearly half of Americans would describe themselves as lonely. We lack concentration on Christ because we're so distracted by the world. Which leads to the final way I think the evil one schemes in our context. Fifth and finally, with doubt, discouragement, or suffering. Listen to Peter's counsel to the church. I want you to notice how Peter is connecting suffering to Satan's schemes. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around you like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood around the world. Satan tried it with Job. He'll try it with you. He'll try it with us, which is why Peter is giving this counsel. Life is hard. The road that leads to eternal life, Jesus says, is hard and few will enter into it. The evil one knows this and he prowls around us seeking to uh, use suffering, to use doubt, to use discouragement, to get us to be dissuaded from Jesus and gaining the sight of his glory. So he's going to employ all of these things to dissuade us, believing that Christ is worth it. He's going to seek to convince us that sin, Satan and the world, they're just too strong. It's better just to give up, follow your flesh, love the world, leave Christ. And so if you're there, Well, you're tempted to be there. Maybe you're influenced even now. You're becoming aware of this now. I leave you with this. Picking up where I left off earlier in Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesians 1, 18 to 23. Listen to what he says. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Y'all remember that from earlier. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in us when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to who to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all folks yes devil is powerful yes he commands the rulers and authorities the cosmic powers over this present darkness yes he powers his powers reach to the heavenly places where he intends to frustrate your faith and lead you away and yes he deceives the throngs today but if you are in christ you have Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and nothing can take that away. Every spiritual blessing. It says in 1 John 3, 8, says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil and so he did. Where on the cross of Christ he hung. He hung and he died for my sin, for your sin if you're trusting in Christ. He died for it. He paid for it. He went into the tomb and on the third day, the worst day of Satan's minuscule, terrible life, He looked and knew that he lost because Christ defeated sin and death in the resurrection. And all those that repent of sin and trust in him, the same is true for them. He has secured every single spiritual blessing. If you turn from sin, trust in Christ, that forgiveness is taken away. The powers of the devil are lost. He cannot defeat it. Revelation 12, 12 says this, says the devil is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. He knows he's going to lose. And he's doing everything in his power to frustrate us, to twist us, to divide us. Jesus' power, folks, is not only above Satan's power, it is far above his power. Far above his power. It's not just slightly above it. It is far above it. His name is not only above the name of Satan. His name is above, Jesus' name is above every name. Not only in this age, but in the one to come. Jesus is the head of the church. He has made his power available to this church, his body. And so, beloved, verse 13 Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand on the evil day. Having done all, stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm in Christ Jesus. Stand firm in the power of the gospel. Stand firm in the love of God that is displayed in the cross and the empty tomb. Stand firm in the truth. Stand firm wielding the shield of faith, which will extinguish, as he says, every single dart that Satan tries to fire against you. Stand firm with the church, the body of Christ, his conquering army, and the expression of his manifold witness. 
As Martin Luther counseled so many years ago, when the devil throws up your sins and declares that you deserve death and hell, respond to him by saying, I admit that I deserve heaven and hell, but what of it? For I know the one who has suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is there I shall be also. James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Folks, Christ has conquered Satan, he lost, he knows he's lost, he knows his time is short, and in Christ we have all the power that we need. Trust him, love him, meditate on his word, be together, and we will conquer. We will suffer, yes, we will suffer discouragement, we will suffer doubt, we will suffer attacks, definitely from within, but also from without. But we will stand victorious on that final day. He loses and he knows he loses. In Christ, we win every single day to eternity. Trust him. Stand firm in his word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the power of the resurrection. Thank you for the power of the cross. We resist the devil. We resist him that he would flee from our lives personally and corporately. We pray Uh, For those churches that are being checked even now, where division is starting to be had, I could name off a dozen churches off the top of my head. I pray that they would resist the evil one. That they would trust in the power of the resurrection. They would believe the word. They would cultivate the truth. And the evil one would flee from those places. I pray, Father, for those that are here in our midst today that are suffering doubt, discouragement, that are suffering from distraction or consumerism or the normalization of sin or false teaching. I pray that we, I pray they would resist the evil one and they would trust in Jesus and the power of his resurrection. I pray that they would believe the truth and live in the power of Christ's might as it is revealed to us in the word. I pray for those that have kept their distance from the conquering army of your church, that they would come near, knowing that is the way in which you have provided them to overcome. But most of all, Father, the most important way we overcome is by looking and gazing upon the glory of Christ. May we look there. May we constantly rehearse this good news. May we be hopeful that Christ will return. And we pray it would be soon. So hard here. So tempted. So sad in so many ways. But there's so much victory. So may we live in it. May we stand in it. May we push it back. Wherever there are seeds of schemes in which Satan is devising now, we resist them. We stand in the power of the resurrection, looking and enjoying Jesus, the lamb that was slain, that will come again. We love you, God, and thank you that you love us by making us aware of such things. Now may we carefully and faithfully walk them out. Thank you for the throngs of way that this church does that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.